This is In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish History. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Mike Brown, your host, and I'm here with Dr. Hasia Diner, who will be speaking with us about her research on Jewish peddlers and a little bit about uh, Jewish peddlers in the state of Indiana and their history. So welcome, Dr. Hasia Diner. It is really my pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to talking about these often nameless but still fascinating uh, uh, Jewish immigrant men. It's amazing to have you here today. And if you could tell us, uh, how did you become interested in the American Jewish peddler story? Okay, that's a great question. So for, on the one hand, you know, they popped up um, in other um, earlier projects, and I um, kind of did one of those, like, hmm, this it's interesting how much I keep hearing about ple- come running across peddlers, uh, but I never really did anything about it. Um, but about, oh, maybe 15 years ago, uh, we were on vacation in upstate New York, and we were driving through the Adirondack region, And the um, guidebook, the AAA guidebook, um, said that the next town that we were approaching, a town called Tupper Lake, New York, um, had one tourist attraction, and it was an old restored synagogue known as the, this is what the um, guidebook said, known as the Peddler's Shoal. So naturally, we were going to go and see that. And uh, we went in, and the docent told a fascinating story of a group of Jewish immigrant men. Uh, This was late 19th, early 20th century, most of whom had come from Lithuania. And um, they had left their wives and children in uh, New York City. And they went up to uh, the Adirondacks. Um, they established Tupper Lake as their base. There were a few Jewish merchants there already, shopkeepers from an earlier era, um, uh, individuals who had um, actually been born in the German-speaking lands, and you know, from in Germany. And these uh, new immigrant Jews, um, these men, um, used the uh, um, these Jewish shops in Tupper Lake as their base of operation. And um, every week they filled up their packs. They went out on the road. Each one had their own itinerary or their own circuit. And they never encroached on each other. And they went uh, house to house, farm to farm. They went into the logging camps uh, and they sold to the um, wives of the loggers. And um, they sold a range of uh, goods, uh, needles, threads, buttons, uh, uh, pots and pans, towels, sheets, eyeglasses, picture frames, and uh, cloth, uh, and, and, and so on. And um, every weekend, uh, these uh, um, upstate New York peddlers would come back to Tupper Lake. Uh, they would be there for the weekend, so they'd be there for the Sabbath. They'd rest. Okay. They would um, stay with some of the Jewish families in town, uh, have a couple good meals, uh, and then Saturday night they would pay back their creditors, that is the people whom uh, they owed money to because they had gotten the material, the goods on um, specs. And then Sunday morning uh, the peddlers went back out on the road. 
And so the docent is telling the story about this one very small place, Tupper Lake. She talked about how um, within a few years, each one of them did well enough to get a horse and wagon. And then after another year or so, they did well enough to be able to, um, I think, contemplate opening a store and then uh, reuniting their families. Okay, bringing their wives and children uh, uh, up to the Adirondacks. And one by one, they opened these shops. And nearly all the dry goods merchants of Tupper Lake uh, within, by the 19-teens, were all former Jewish, were, uh, former peddlers, all these Jewish immigrant men. And so I was listening to the uh, docent tell this story. And I remembered I had run across uh, peddlers and so many other um um, Jewish histories. And I thought, you know, this is really fascinating. I think I'm going to stop here. This is a story I want to tell. And over time, the history that I wrote expanded beyond, um, uh, certainly beyond Tupper Lake, but uh, beyond New York, beyond the East Coast. But it included the entirety of the United States and indeed Canada, uh, Australia, South Africa, uh, Latin, the Caribbean, uh, parts of Latin America, and a number of places, even in Europe, uh, like Ireland, the British, and other parts of the British uh, and parts of the British Isles, um, Scandinavia, places where there really had not been Jewish communities before. And in each one of those places, it was these um, Jewish men who strategized that the best way to migrate to find a new home was to, um, we might say, put on the peddler's pack and get out on the road. So um, I began in this little place of Tupper Lake, and eventually it uh, I came to encompass, uh, uh, one could say, the entirety of the new world. Um, what would you say are some of your research techniques? Because I imagine it would be very hard to research the peddlers. Absolutely. Very difficult because uh, for so many reasons. Um, so for one thing, many peddlers who did well, and most of them certainly were successful enough um, later on to become shopkeepers. Very few become like Adam Gimbel, who I'm going to talk about as an important Indiana Jewish peddler. Uh, very few of them became so well known that their name is emblazoned in American retail history. Um, uh, so how to find them. So first, um, oh, the other thing about them that makes them hard to track is because they, didn't, they don't peddle that long, they don't usually show up in the census as peddlers. Okay, we find them in the census actually once they've become shopkeepers. Okay, so that makes it really hard. So I, um, in a way... Um, uh, used every research strategy that was at my command. Um, they show up in Jewish communal histories. Uh, they show up in um, sometimes in memoirs and autobiographies uh, written by their children. Um, this was a, uh, some of the peddlers. In fact, quite a few of them get robbed. Okay, uh, sadly, a few of them even get murdered, and um, then they become part of a legal record. So that was a very helpful uh, kind of um, source for me to use. Um, they uh, show up in obituaries. Okay, so this was a project very much born of the age of the internet because I could um, Google uh, Jewish immigrant peddlers and I got um, 
uh, millions, literally, of hits. And uh, many of these were uh, obituaries from small towns, again, around the New World. And the obituary would often read, um, uh, this person, so-and-so, came to southern Alabama or uh, western Kansas or uh, northern Vermont as a pack peddler. Okay, and then in the obituary, they told the uh, details of the person's uh, life so I could track when they arrived uh, and then uh, when they opened their first store. So that gives me a, gave me a sense of um, how long they had been peddlers. Um, uh, they would give me information about how their uh, business operations uh, expanded, uh, what happens to their children, their communal involvement both in terms of Jewish community and in terms of the general community. So these obituaries were, were wonderful sources. And um, really, you know, it was a lot of digging, but it's kind of digging I think that um, historians love. And so just as one example, many um, states and um, towns would publish, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, what they called brag books, like the 100 most successful merchants of Bangor, Maine. Okay, that's not exactly a book that would fly off the shelf you know, for pleasure reading, but I went through the 100 uh, most prominent businessmen of Bangor, Maine, and I found all the Jews. Okay. And I knew they were Jews because in their life history would said, this person helped found the Jewish temple or the Jewish congregation. And I may have missed a person here or there, but um, what I found in, again, hundreds of these uh, brag books is that nearly all the Jewish uh, men who did well enough to show up in this book, um, their story said they began as pack peddlers. So I would say this was a lot of um, needle and haystack, digging around, um, leaving no source unturned, as a way to uh, possibly find um, uh, these uh, uh, um, peddlers. And, you know, what would you say was the prime motivation of Jewish immigrants to become peddlers at the time? Yeah, so nobody did it because they loved it. It was hard. It was unpleasant. Um, um, Isaac Mayer Wise, the founder of the reform movement in, in the United States, once claimed that the, the average peddler carried over 100 pounds on his back. So it was not fun. It was raining. It was cold. It was hot. The roads were muddy. Uh, people were could be hostile. Um, and, and lots of terrible things. But it was a means to an end. So on the one hand, um, peddling had been a Jewish occupation for uh, literally centuries. I mean, Jews in Southern Europe, in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, um, had long been involved with peddling. Uh, one study of uh, just a town, random, you know, um, citation that comes to my mind. It was a study of um, Jews in uh, 18th century uh, France and written uh, pretty much uh, within uh, 20 years after it, after the French Revolution. And the historian said nearly all men made a living as hucksters, okay, uh, that is, and taking to the road. So it was a common Jewish occupation. And so for Jewish men, um, 
in a way, as the pioneers of their family, as the first ones in their family, um, in their families to uh, make that move um, out of their uh, their um, old homes, their their places they had grown up, um, they turned to this occupation that they knew. So the motivation was peddling provided an engine which helped uh, get them out and into a new place. Uh, they were familiar with it. They always got credit from other Jews. So the, the existence of a Jewish um, networks, credit network system made it possible. And um, their motivation was not to peddle. Nobody said, gee, I'd love to be a peddler. Okay, uh, But I see peddling as a means to an end. If I peddle, I can earn enough money certainly more than if I stayed in some large city and worked as an industrial laborer okay, where I had to uh, where uh, uh, so I could earn enough money so that I could reunite my family and settle down and stop being a peddler so the motivation was to do it in order to achieve something uh, uh, more comfortable and uh, potentially more um, uh, economically robust. So it was simply a means to an end, not an end to itself. No, I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> um, and the few peddlers who have left us um, memoirs um, could not be have been uh, more uh, uh, miserable. And so, again, I just presume we will come back to Adam Gimbel is probably the most famous um, uh, Jewish peddler from Indiana and in Indiana. But uh, he came from Bavaria, and just about the same time, um, another Bavarian um, Jewish immigrant named uh, Jacob Cohen uh, comes to, he starts in New York, and he goes to upstate, uh, to Western Massachusetts. And he did leave a memoir, and he, in that letter, in that memoir, says, Oh, youth of Bavaria, stay home. This is the most miserable existence you could imagine. And um, so nobody wanted to do it, um, uh, but it was, as you say, a means to an end. Could you describe the concept of, of a Medina or what a peddler's territory was to us? Yes. So a Medina, obviously, is a, uh, Medina is a Hebrew word for it means a kingdom. And there's something a little tongue-in-cheek about this because, again, this kingdom could be uh, uh, miles of unpaved, muddy roads, uh, which in the winter are covered with snow and in the, wind and in the summer infested with uh, mosquitoes. So it's a funny word of the funny use of the word kingdom. But uh, since all Jewish peddlers got their goods from Jewish wholesalers and in small towns, they pretty much all operated through the uh, uh, aegis of the same uh, wholesaler. And he could be a shopkeeper or he might be the owner of a peddler warehouse. Okay, But the one wholesaler has multiple peddlers working for him. And so he gave, he would give each peddler his, his own okay, uh, um, uh, uh, route. And uh, the peddlers could not encroach on each other's Medina. Okay? Uh, England can't encroach on France. France can't, even though they obviously did historically. The idea is that the, there were borders um, to these um, um, uh, uh, um, 
uh, routes or to these territories that the peddlers got. From the point of view of the wholesaler, having the peddlers compete with each other would cut down on the wholesaler's profit. The wholesaler wanted to be able to uh, distribute his merchandise um, as far as possible. And there was also, I think quite rightly, a sense that um, if uh, multiple peddlers came to the same home, the uh, housewife would just get really furious. Why is another one of these people coming to my house? I mean, I think it's a little bit maybe like the robocalls we get now. I don't get just one trying to sell me car insurance. Okay, ironically, since I don't own a car, but I have four or five different ones. Hey, okay, I can't, I'm so unhappy with any of these calls. So the idea is that the one peddler going to a set of homes uh, would establish uh, warm, cordial relationships with the women they sold to. Okay, and um, he would be essentially her, ex she would essentially have the services exclusively of this one uh, one peddler. And um, obviously having a warm personal relationship uh, with the same customers and for the customer to have a warm, friendly relationship with one peddler was a great way to enhance sales. Now there is actually even a little bit of a Talmudic principle about uh, uh, merchants should not um, encroach on each other's territory. So it has a little bit of a basis in um, Jewish law, but more importantly, it would have made no um, uh, um, uh, business um, sense to uh, to not set it up the way it was. And, you know, just uh, you're, you're mentioning Adam Gimbel. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about his amazing story and about some of the other uh, Indiana connected Jewish uh, peddlers that you you researched in your work. Yeah, so let me flip your question. So first, in terms of others other than Gimbel, <clears throat> what's really notable is the histories um, as they exist of um, not a few and not some, but every Jewish community in Indiana and it's true of Ohio, it's true of Wisconsin, it's true of Illinois, it's true of Michigan, okay? All have a peddler origin, okay? And in a way their names don't really matter, uh, but each one begins with a peddler uh, who uh, is drawn to that uh, 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 region, and again, it's not just Indiana, but it might be Southern Indiana or it might be Northwestern Indiana, um, uh, drawn there for two reasons. First, the existence of um, uh, a population of um, farmers or others um, who have limited access to marketplace. Okay. And the wives of those uh, farmers, or the women are the farmer, are farmers also, the women who are responsible for the domestic sphere wanting to have a tablecloth or wanting to have sheets and pillowcases or wanting to have uh, uh, needles and thread. Um, these regions to which the peddlers went, the other thing that would have brought them, let's say, to southern Indiana or uh, uh, northern, northwestern uh, Indiana 
was proximity to some larger community that had a base already of Jewish um, uh, merchants. So uh, Jewish peddlers who would have gone to North uh, Western Indiana might very likely have uh, been based in Chicago. Okay, and then, uh, which is where they would have gotten their goods, where they would have gone back on the weekend, okay, and then uh, from which they went back to the road. So um, the names of most of these people are pretty obscure, and um, um, I can tell you their story resembles uh, the stories of those um, who went to, again, Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin uh, and the like. Gimbel, we know him because he was the one who uh, uh, struck it, uh, struck uh, gold, as it were. And, you know, he's in that same category of the other, um, shall we say, merchant princes um, who built uh, the large department stores. Um, Riches in Atlanta is one like that. Um, May in uh, Pittsburgh. Okay. And um, their stories were almost uh, uh they could one could stand for stand in for the other so what we know about gimbal he was from bavaria which is the first uh um source of um the great jewish migration so jewish immigrant the big jewish migration to the united states really takes off in the 18 teens and 1820s and bavaria is the hot spot from which these merchants, uh, from, no, from which these immigrants uh, left uh, for all sorts of reasons. And um, uh, they are the Jews, the Jewish men like Adam Gimbel who come are poor. Okay? They have often no more capital than um, uh, that which, you know, than um, uh, what's left after paying their fare. I know that Gimbel um, actually um paid his fare did not have the money for his fare but uh worked as a uh um unskilled hand on the ship on the sail on the sail ship um so that uh, they he got fare in lieu of wages and um he like all the others um arrives at a port city um in the united states uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Charleston, so on. He arrives in New Orleans and um, has a very menial, uh, uh, unskilled job. You know, he's not coming with education. He's not coming with resources. Um, but he worked actually as a dock worker in, in New Orleans, and, which was a pretty substantial transplanted port. And... Um, what he what he saw was that um, he was often loading goods on the docks on uh, barges um, that carried Jewish peddlers who he would have recognized as German speakers or as speakers, in fact, of a Bavarian strain of something called Judeo-German, okay, a bit like Yiddish, actually, more like than German. And um, what he saw was that these men would leave New Orleans. He Again, he, as the unskilled dock can, would be loading their barges and their ba their goods on the, on, on the barges and that they were carrying cloth and pots and pans. And, uh, uh, and then they went up the river um, uh, um, selling to people. Okay. And they came back with empty sacks. 
Okay, so they left with full sacks. They came back with empty sacks, which means, okay, they were able to sell what they had. And um, so that um, uh, he um, thought that this was, again, rightly uh, the, uh, the way for him to do something more than be a dock worker in, uh, in New Orleans. And um, he uh, did this for a number of years, selling off of barges or off of ships, or off of boats. And um, I just want to say parenthetically, there are stories just like this of Jewish peddlers in the Amazon. Okay, uh, uh, um, going in there um, in their boats up the Amazon, selling goods from one on the to the clusters of settlement on the banks of the Amazon. Okay, in Gimbel's case, it was the banks of the Mississippi. Um, he posted notices on his on the trees, uh, which said when uh, what he was carrying and when he would be there. And um, by the 1840s, so within five years of doing this kind of uh, um, water-based um, selling, he shows up in Vincennes, Indiana, and um, and rivers play a huge role in in the pet in peddler history, and partly it's because that most settlements take place um, on the convergence of rivers, and so he comes to Vincennes, where the Wabash and the Ohio come together. And um, it was there that he took all of his earnings from his years peddling by water um, to uh, um, open um, his, uh, his first um, shop. And um, obviously in a station, in a store, in a real store, um, he could carry goods uh, more extensive and bigger than what he had carried as a peddler. Um, so uh, um, he uh, uh, makes quite a go of that store. And so from um, uh, the 1840s, um, he is um, getting larger and larger uh, uh, spaces from which to sell. And uh, um, by 1887, he is um, really successful and he moves on to Milwaukee. Uh, which was a big city. And um, again, a very notable characteristic of much of this peddler history is that he chose Milwaukee because it had a large German-speaking population. And so it was not at all uncommon for Jewish peddlers to go and sell, whether by water, like uh, um, Adam Gimbel, or by foot, like uh, um, so many others, to sell to people who... Um, came from the same place in Europe um, that uh, the peddler had come from. So these were essentially um, their old neighbors from back home. Okay, so uh, uh, for um, Adam Gimbel, going to Milwaukee meant, um, uh, again, being able to um, interact with and sell to a, uh, a German-speaking public. Um, the store grows. It becomes known as Gimbel Brothers. Um, it then moves to an even bigger city, to Philadelphia, and um, he uh, uh, expands his store to actually uh, be a center to, to take on the manufacturing process so that he can both control the manufacturing and the, um, uh, the retail of the, um, of the goods. So uh, the name Gimbel Brothers, I actually happen to have grown up in Milwaukee, 
And so that Gimbel Brothers was such a um, kind of fixture of um, uh, going for one's new school clothing or if my mother was going to make a leap and buy a new refrigerator, um, it was Gimbel Brothers. So it's quite a story, but um, in some ways it's a quite a story because it actually replicates so much of this Jewish peddler history in Indiana, in other parts of the United States and other parts of the New World. Um, and again, I say new world, meaning new world for Europeans. Um, and what you have with with him or with the Lehmans or with Guggenheim or Rosenwald and so on, it's just that we know the names of the fabulously successful. We don't know the names of the people who may have uh, opened a store in um, uh, uh, Springfield, Illinois or uh, uh, St. Lawrence, New York, or uh, who really wherever, who just didn't become, who, who had modestly comfortable lives um, uh, in these um, shops. Did, did peddlers settle down in, in these small towns in the Midwest? Did they just, and, and establish their dry goods stores and become retailers? Mm -hmm. Yes, many of them do, um, and um, it's you know it's kind of a one or two generational story. But many of the peddlers open up once they get to, they're, they're getting off the road. They open up stores in all of these midwestern and other towns, and so as in the Tupper Lake story that I began this with, um, by um, at some point in time, Jews Jewish merchants all of whom were former peddlers, have pretty much cornered the dry goods um, field um, and clothing. Because okay, so there was a study done of Columbus, Ohio, and it said all the um, men's and women's clothing stores in Columbus were owned by former peddlers, uh, former Jewish peddlers. So they become, now Columbus is not a small town, but uh, um, it um, it's really a, a Picture of these small towns to have a handful of Jewish merchants. Um, they may or may not uh, have a large enough um, number to build a synagogue. In Tupper Lake, they sure did because it was this restored synagogue, which is where I got my inspiration. And um, usually their children and for sure their grandchildren don't stay. You know, they're attracted to the big city um, and they're attracted Know, their children, and again, particularly their grandchildren, um, uh, receive American educations, and the uh, um, idea of uh, living your life in Tupper, Tupper Lake, New York, okay, or probably Vincennes, Indiana, is just really not very attractive. Did you run into any other specific uh, Indiana towns or, or cities in your research besides Vincennes? Yeah, I mean, in a way, every single one of them. And so I'm thinking about Judith Endelman's book on the history of the Jews of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's full of peddlers. Okay, and um, your Jewish Historical Society published a journal for a while, and one can go through every issue, and there'll be an article about a small town, and sure enough, peddlers just pop up in right. every place. Right. And, exactly. Um, you know, I think it's actually would be a great project for something like the Indiana Jewish Historical Society to really document these and to document the shops that grow up around um, once the peddlers um, uh, decide to get off the road and make those uh, kind of really important uh, 
kind of legacy. And it's in every single corner of the state, you know, to Mount Vernon, Indiana, you have retailers named Rosenbaums. And I checked to make sure the Rosenbaums are actually Jewish family with cemetery records. And, and behold, they are a Jewish family. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, and you know, honestly, if you um, uh, went to almost any other state, you'll find it. If you go to Australia, to South Africa, uh, you'll find it. Um, I saw a census of Jews in Sweden in the 1870s. Now, Sweden was a country where Jews were not allowed to live before the uh, mid-19th century. And so in a census on the, in the 1870s in Sweden, every single Jew was from Poland and every single Jew was a uh, either a peddler or a store owner. Which brings me to another question. Was there anything intrinsically different between the earlier German-speaking Jewish counterparts that you mentioned mostly from Bavaria versus their later Yiddish-speaking counterparts that came later from Lithuania and Poland and so forth? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And so this is my general um, takeaway on that, is that the Bavarians and also those from other parts, you know, Westphalia, Rhineland and so on, tended to be single men. They were unmarried men, and um, they were a, on the younger side. And, and this is partly because Bavaria had actually passed a law um, which a limited Jewish marriage. And so it said no Jew could uh, marry um, unless they could, um, they had enough capital to establish a household, and in fact, these uh, the the province had a um, a list. You know, the state. I mean, Bavaria was actually a state. Um, it had a list. It was called the Matrikel, and a Jew, a Jew, a Jewish couple could marry only when the, somebody had left, and you know, when, when when there was a slot on that list. Okay, um, so obviously that's a disincentive. You know, that's a real uh, force to you know push young Jews out. And so many of these Jewish peddlers from Bavaria were unmarried men who, if they stayed home, could never marry, or they'd have to marry illegally, which some did, and just not record it with the, with the state, which became difficult. Um, and once they established themselves in the United States, that is, once they have peddled, um, saved money, uh, and could potentially open a um, store, that's when they would get married. And there's some very poignant store, stories of um, these men um, who go back home to their home village and, um, and find you know, a young Jewish woman to marry, and they bring over her sisters, because there's so many Jewish bachelors in that era. And um, so it's really a very, very um, interesting story. The ones who come later tend to be already married, not always, but are more likely to, were more likely to have been married. And they do two, there are two possible things they do. One, they leave their wives and children back home. That is in Lithuania, okay, or in Romania, or in uh, Belarus, Ukraine. And they send for the wives and children once they have uh, um, established themselves again, now they have a store. Or as in the case of uh, the Tupper Lake, Tupper Lake uh, peddlers, 
uh, the Tupperlite Jewish shopkeepers, um, they left their wives and um, children in New York City, and they would see them a few times a year. They'd come back basically for the uh, um, fall Jewish holidays and then for Passover. Um, so um, there was a, a kind of age difference and a marital status difference between the um, earlier and the later peddlers. Now, otherwise, did... their experiences were really quite similar. Mm. I mean, did you find in your research because you you mentioned that the the shul in upstate New York, and there's all there also was a peddler shul in Indianapolis called Ezra's Achim. So I'm wondering, um, kind of a twofold question: um, Were the later peddlers much more religious than than their German speaking counterparts? No. Um, you... um, so remember the the people who are coming in the eighteen. I didn't mean to answer so quickly, but it's 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 kind of an idea that the Jew, that the Jews who come from the German lands were less religious. They were very religious. They were very traditional, um, and um, they uh, now they do many of them do embrace reform, but not until decades in the United States. Now, so they come poor. They come traditional. And for any peddler, be he, and I say he because really this was an occupation only for men, um, be they, uh, um, you know, from Bavaria, or be they from you, from uh, Lithuania, um, they um, their religious uh, lives are certainly challenged by the life of a peddler. You know, and um, they uh, you know, question of what to eat while you're on the road. Okay, um, and you know many of them actually end up sleeping in their customers' homes, and they have to sort of navigate um, what the customers offer them to eat, and um, uh, and saying I can't eat that, you know, it's it's not it's against my religion. So um, they're they they are really at the same level of religious observance. I'd say the Lithuanian um, later peddlers are probably coming with a bit more Judaic knowledge. They may, you know, they may have had a more uh, systematic and traditional education, but, uh, you know, in Judaic education, not secular. And, and, you know, talking about, you know, personal hygiene on the road, you know, all the things you have to do to get cleaned up before you can do to feel out, you know, on the side of the road. Did you encounter any stories about how they would get cleaned up before, before, before praying? Before oh, that's so interesting. I, you know, I don't remember any of them ever talking about um, cleaning themselves up. Um, but I, what I, what the stories that do emerge, um, is again, because they often slept in their pet, in their, um, customers' homes, okay, which is obviously a, a kind of story in and of itself. And, um, that kind of meant that, um, you know, the customer would um, see them praying in the morning and we have a few nights, so the, the, the material on this is to say the least, not systematically collected and you're you know lucky if you get bits and pieces of this story uh but uh um the stories we have are of the um uh, the husband wife you know in the in the house in the home um seeing this peddler who they know is a jew and who has an odd accent and all that you know in the mornings uh, standing there wrapped in a um piece of cloth with some 
weird leather things on his forehead. And it doesn't mean it. How would they know what that is? And so um, there's commentary on that. Um, which is a wonderful prelude to my last question. It would be, how did they deal with different forms of anti-Semitism that they would encounter? Yeah, so um, for the most part, um, they didn't. That is, um, and I'm going to tell this, I'm going to say it in, in a couple of ways. First, you know, Jews were not the first or only peddlers. And much of the nasty stuff said by uh, local people against Jewish peddlers and some of the legislation that was undertaken to um, kind of make it hard for them to work was also done against so-called Yankee peddlers. Whereas before there were Jewish peddlers in uh, the Northwest Territory, okay, which Indiana was part of, um, there were Yankee peddlers, uh, guys from Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, where they couldn't make a living in agriculture. They come out to the Midwest to, and, and they take up peddling. And the newspapers are full of, and the uh, public rhetoric is full of anti-peddler stuff about Yankee peddlers. So it's not about Jews as peddlers, but it's about peddlers. Okay, um, you know, and local merchants want to um, uh, have ta you know higher taxes on peddlers' licenses to make it impossible for for them to peddle. And it's not uh, particularly directed at Jews; it's at anyone who's peddling. Um, the peddlers, where we have their words, where they have talked about their experiences, have been, were pretty clear, people were nice to them. The women loved the stuff they sold, um, and um, they um, were really happy to have them there. Um, they, where they could, they accommodated their religious needs, and um, there was... You know, again, there were, you know, kind of obnoxious teenage boys who threw stuff at them. It's not anti-Semitism, right? They're obnoxious teenage boys who threw stuff at Yankee peddlers or at Arab peddlers. Um, and so uh, there's, in fact, a great story one peddler told um, who was down south where he knocked on a door. It was a new customer, so he had never met this woman before. And before he even starts talking, she says, I don't let Yankees in my house. And at that point, he knows enough English to say, I'm not a Yankee, I'm a Jew. He's, oh, you can come in. <laughs> uh, and so, um, yes, there's talk against Jewish peddlers, but there was talk against Yankee peddlers just as much. And there were some Germans who peddled. Um, so anti-Semitism was really not a particularly um, salient factor in their lives. And we know this also because, again, the customers let them come and sleep in their homes. Okay, well, that's not anti-Semitism. And when the peddlers um, uh, settle down and open their shops, uh, they become uh, respected. Um, you know, they may not become fabulously wealthy, but they become respected um, uh, members of the local kind of retail population. Would you say that they were kind of sort of ambassadors of the Jewish people in a way, you know, coming absolutely. to these towns. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I think in my book I said something like um, they were involved in uh, unplanned uh, informal interfaith education because the customers would ask them, well, how come you're doing that? Why can't you eat squirrel? 
Okay, why can't you have ham hocks? And so the peddler has to say, well, my religion doesn't allow us to do this or it doesn't allow us to do that. Or the peddler would say, I'm not going to be here next week because it's a holiday. And so for the, you know, so let's say it was coming up to Passover. Um, and so the customer nationally said, well, what kind of holiday? They don't, why would they have ever known about uh, uh, Passover? So, um, yeah, I mean, they really do serve that. Now, again, you know, I, 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 I should say that there's a degree to which uh, one has to take some of these stories with a grain of salt because they can't be verified. But um, there was a story from the Dakotas of a man who, uh, he was a peddler, a Lithuanian, his customers all knew him to be a very religious man. His name was uh, Moshe, so he went locally by the name Moses. And um, uh, in the the narrative written by his daughter, okay, so this is the stories her father told her, he said they used to call me Holy Moses. And at one point, several of the customers asked him if he would um, be willing to come and lead their religious services because they didn't have a minister. The minister had died or the minister had moved away. And um, they um, they said, we know you're a very religious man, so would you come and um, lead services for us till we can get a new minister? And so in this memoir, the daughter says, so for a couple months, my father went every Sunday to this, it was a German-speaking um, Protestant church, and said he would lead them in a discussion of the, of the Torah portion of the week. Hmm. He would explain, you know, what Rashi say about uh, Bishalach, or what did Rashi say about Parshat Yitro, and he, obviously he didn't lead them in hymn singing, because he wouldn't have known those hymns, but how about that as an ambassador for Judaism? Wow. Okay, that um, a group of uh, German Christians in the Dakotas for some number of months uh, were led by um, a Jew, a Lithuanian Jew. I also, there was also a story of um, some Jewish peddlers whose base was um, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, who actually taught in the local um, Christian Baptist Sunday school. They knew the Bible. So um, yeah, I mean, it's in a sense, I think a really remarkable, um, piece of kind of, let's say, modern Jewish history um, and helps us explain, I think, the way in which Judaism as a religion comes to be integrated um, as an acceptable faith um, in places where no Jews had lived before. And I mean, in closing, uh, my last question, uh, my last, last question, <laughs> which you, you know, from also researching peddlers in Europe, would you say that any of these stories would be really completely possible in Europe and, and the places that Jews previously lived? No. I mean, I think, you know, without, I mean, I know, again, I said that in a very um, categorical way, um, but I do think that that is the case, that it just could not have happened because um, there was too much baggage from before. I mean, these Jews show up in these places in South Africa, in um Native uh, reservations in the American West, in um, uh, the uh, Canadian prairie, and um, they're kind of unknown. There's no Jewish presence on their landscape. And so um, there's a kind of clean slate uh, way of uh, thinking about this, you know, that uh, the, both the Jews and their customers 
uh, to some level see have have um, uh, uh, sort of uh, kind of neutral ideas about each other, and um, the state is very uninvolved in regulating peddlers in the United States for sure, as opposed to in um, uh, in the in the European states where um, there's a tremendous amount of regulation. Um, so I think this is a very distinctively uh, um, new world story, but I think particularly distinctively uh, American. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hasia Diner. And I want to encourage everyone to go look at your local bookstore or go online and look for The Great Jewish Migrations to the New World and the Peddlers Who Forged the Way. Um, uh, Dr. Hasia Diner's book from uh, 2015. And um, I believe, who, who was the publisher? Yale, Yale University yeah. Press. Yeah. And it actually, the, the title is um, Roads Taken. Roads Taken. Okay. Roads Taken, The Great Jewish Migration to the New World. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Hasu Diner, and it was great speaking with you today. My pleasure. Um, uh, very exciting um, uh, project you have there of doing these um, historic Jewish historical podcasts. Good luck to you. Thank you, Dr. Diner, and all the best to you as well. Thank you for listening to the In Jewish History podcast, a project of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Look us up on the web at ijhs.org.